Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. If you don't know Mitch Album by name or face, you know him from his incredible work. Tuesdays with Maury, which came out back in 1997, is the top-selling memoir of all time. It sold 17 million copies since it was first published. Mitch has six other bestsellers, but knowing him like I do, let me tell you, Mitch's greatest work is not on the pages of those books. This is a guy who opens his doors, the ones to his home that he shares with his wife, to children who are in need. From the orphanage he runs, have faith, Haiti. He helps heal them. He helps nourish them and sets them up for a future they would have never otherwise imagined. That is the Mitch album I know. And that's who you're going to meet today. I'm Hoda Kotb and welcome to Making Space. Mitch, first I want to say there's something about you and your presence and when you walk into a room, something happens. We should point out as we're sitting down to do our podcast, you did not come in alone. You came in with two young kids who were from Haiti, from the orphanage that you care for. And look, there's a lot of things you could be doing in this moment. I guess, why? Why? These kids that I have with me, they're one's 15 and one's 16. They've been with me since um, they were four and five years old. So, you know, for me, they are my children, you know. Uh, And uh, there's 53 of them right now. Um, There'll be more. And then some of them are going off to college. So we're losing them. We're getting them in. Um, But I I don't know how I mean that. Sometimes things just fall in front of you. And uh, it wasn't like I was looking to do this. I'd never had any experience running an orphanage before. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I just happened to be down there and I happened to be at that place. And I happened to ask the guy who had been running it, how come the kids aren't eating? And he said, well, I don't have any money to operate this. And I'm 84 years old. And wow. and in one of those moments, I said, well, I could probably do this. How hard could this be? And he said, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Here it is. And I've been running it ever since. I feel like you are this, you're like full of life lessons. And you write about a lot of them in your books. And I feel like we're all kind of hungry for something, you know, for purpose and meaning for more than what we do. And the old Jew was a guy who was like a lot of people who I know the guy chasing it, the guy running after it, the guy getting, you know, an award-winning sports writer, man. You had it all happening. Money was coming and fame was coming and you had it all going. And yet somehow in those moments, you didn't feel uh, fulfilled. No, uh, I'm not alone like you suggested. Uh, I was, and it happened right at my mid-30s that I had lucky enough to have an intervention by fate. (laughs) 
I happened to see Maury Schwartz, who was an old college professor of mine on TV, talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die. It was the first that I even realized that he was dying. And I did not understand it at that moment. But when I look back on my life, that was God or fate sending me like, okay, we're going to put a stop sign right in front of you Hmm. right now. And you're not going to be able to keep going forward. You're going to have to turn. Now let's see if you turn to the right or to the left. Let's watch what happens. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, I, I turned towards Maury, began going to visit him every Tuesday. And that changed the trajectory of my life along with all its priorities and has been you know, an, an attempt to try to live up to those things as opposed to the things that were driving me the first 37 years of my life. As you reflect on Tuesdays with Maury now, I mean, I know he taught you life lessons in the moment. What were the big ones he taught you then? And then what, like, what have you kind of figured out since? The biggest one or two that he told me that, that stay with me, um, one was death ends a life but not a relationship. Death ends a life, but not a relationship. Now, a lot of people end at that sentence. They say, Mm -hmm. oh, that's so profound. I said, well, there's an adjunct to that sentence. And the adjunct is, death ends a life, but not a relationship. But you have to have worked on that relationship Mm. while you were alive Mm. in order for death not to end it. Mm. So if you don't spend any time investing in those relationships, Mm -hmm. death is death. Dead with a capital D. You're done. You're bye-bye. Your money, they're going to fight over. They always do. Your beautiful body's going to rot in the ground next to the fat guy. You know, it doesn't matter. Everything that you worked on here on earth, gone. But the one thing that you had control of, sharing yourself with other people, giving to other people, spending time with other people, teaching other people, you didn't spend any time doing. You're too busy working. Mm -hmm. So then when you're dead, you are D-A-A-D, dead, gone. So death ends a life and not a relationship. If you work on those relationships while you're here. And I was not doing that. I was busy. Yeah. Right. I was like busy. I mean, that word gets so you know, busy. Ridiculous. How many times have we used yes. that? I've been so busy. It's been so busy. It's so busy. It's and so it's busy. almost like an ah wow, you're yeah. you're busy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people admire they the love word that. busy. Yeah. yeah. Great. Oh, great. How's it going? I'm so busy. Oh, great. <laughs> and you know, you realize there's such a price to the word busy, because it means that you can't, you know, it, it, busy um in and Creole is occupy, like from occupied. And that's like more, uh, more true. You know, when you think about it, it means you're so occupied with yeah. whatever you're doing, you're not paying attention to something else. And uh, I was like that. So, um, you know, that was the first one. And Maury certainly taught me that. And the other big one was giving is living. And this came about, if you have... 60 seconds for an anecdote. I'm making space for you, Mitch Album. You please. You, okay. Well, this, is, this is your stage. It's a new format. I don't know how long <laughs> I'm supposed to talk. But, um, you know, I used to, I wasn't the only person to visit Maury, obviously. And people came on other days other than Tuesdays. And sometimes they came on Tuesdays. And I began to observe that there were a lot of people who had seen him on Nightline. And they were very uncomfortable with somebody who was dying. They didn't quite know what to say. They would come in all prepared. You know, they have mm. pictures. They, you know, it was like going to be a, a session. A thing, yeah. And they would go into his office, the door would close, and they would come out an hour later in tears. But they'd be crying about their job, their divorce, their love life. And I would say, what happened? They'd say, well, I don't know. I went in and 
you know, I tried to cheer him up, but, you know, after about five minutes, he started asking me about my life. And so I started telling him, and he started really asking me. So I really started telling him, he started asking, giving me advice. And next thing I know, I was crying. And so I went in to try to cheer him up and he ended up cheering me up. Huh. So after a while, I went into him and I said, I don't get it. Yeah. Like if ever anyone had finally earned the sentence, let's not talk about your problems. Yeah. Let's talk about my problem. It would be you. So why don't, why, why are you doing this? And he said, Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that. Taking makes me feel like I'm dying. Mm. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And that was one of those like lightning bolt things that to this day, I can still see mm. him saying it to me and I can still hear him saying it to me. And it was so, you know, when you hear something that's so profoundly true and yet you were unaware of it until that moment, it feels like somebody just clonked you with a shovel, right? And I, I'm saying, well, here's a guy who's dying. and the opportunity to get from other people is there for him at every moment, and he wants nothing to do with it. He just wants to give. There's something there mm. that if I can apply it to my life mm. when I'm young enough and healthy enough, I'm going to be a lot happier. And that was the turning point for me. Were you able to apply like the things he said then? Uh, not immediately. Yeah. I think this is stuff is a slow boil. Yeah. I think it gets into, you know, first you go home and you talk about it with your wife. Yeah. And she says, yeah, he's right. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so now that's two people who are kind of telling you. And you start, you begin to start, it's like binoculars. You know, when you first put them up, yeah. they're never in focus. Uh, but you just start to turn those things and yeah. they start to get in focus. And you realize I'm turning the right direction. Yeah. Right? So I'm going to keep turning until they get really sharp. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what happened with that idea. I said, this is the right direction. And I just kept turning it until it basically became my life. So you were obviously hitting your stride in your field yeah. and at that moment. Um, how long did it take for you to really feel the change? It took until Tuesdays with Maury came oh, out. Wow. This was God or fate just, just saying, okay, let's see what direction you're going to go. So I took the first act of the giving is living, honestly, was writing the book about Maury hmm. because I wrote it to pay his medical bills. Mm-hmm. And all the money went to him to pay his medical bills. It wasn't supposed to be, we weren't supposed to be sitting here, Hoda. You were never <laughs> supposed to know who I was. Uh, I was never supposed to enter your world. I was going to be living out in the Midwest and being a sports writer. That was it. And, you know, they didn't, they printed, I don't know, 20,000 total copies wow. for the whole Is that world. Right? Yeah. I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the yeah. rest of my life at Thanksgiving. I'd be giving them <laughs> out to family members. And so it was supposed to be a big book, but um, I wanted to help him pay his medical bills because he didn't have the money to do it. And it was the first thing that was in front of me after he had kind of made this revelation about giving his living. And I'm saying, well, I can apply this right here. Because mm -hmm. he told me, he said, I'm very afraid I don't have the money to pay for all these bills. Oh, and when geez. I die, they're going to have to sell the house. And he said, I'm going to have two deaths. One when I go in the ground and one when I realize all the damage I'm doing in my family by incurring all these costs. So I began to write up, start up this book. And I went around right around where we are here sitting around New York City, went around to a bunch of different publishers and, and said, I just need this much money to pay his bills. That's it. That's all I want. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I'm learning all these lessons from this. An old man talking to a young man. Yeah. I think it could be a good book. And we got told no everywhere what? we went. Everywhere. No, boring. Nobody wants to read about that. It's depressing. You're a sports writer. Nobody, I mean, I can't tell you how many people just told us to take did a walk. Did you almost throw in the towel or did you just... I almost did, except yeah. that it was for somebody else. I would have if it was for me. Wow. 
And that was when I learned that when you do things for other people, mm. you have much more mm. energy and passion mm. than when for yourself. At least I do. Mm -hmm. I find it very hard to ask for things for myself. You know, mm -hmm. I don't even like asking for reservation for, <laughs> you know, at a, at a restaurant. Uh, but if it's for one of my kids, I'll, yeah. I'll go through a wall. So what happened? Did you? We found one publisher who agreed uh, three weeks before Maury died to oh, uh, publish geez. a book. And uh, I said, we need to get the money up front because I need to give it to him while he's alive. Uh -huh. And I went, and Maury didn't know that I was doing any of this. And I went to him uh, a few weeks before he died. And I said, listen, I got some good news. You know, this conversation we've been having. And, yeah. I said, um, well, there's a publisher. I found a publisher wants to publish it. He said, really? Who? I said, Doubleday. He said, ooh, I heard of them. I said, yeah, well, not only that, but they're going to give us some money for it. And I want you to take all the money and pay your bills and don't die a second death. And mm. I always tell people that for me, that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury, for me, because I had finally done one nice thing for mm. this man who had done so many nice things for me up to that point in my life. I had finally actually learned a lesson and mm. put it into action, you know? And so really it began there, but then, when you asked that second part of your question, like when it kind of changed mm -hmm. my life, well, from there I began, I didn't, I didn't write a word of Tuesdays with Maury until after Maury died. Mm -hmm. So he never saw any of it. That's what's so remarkable about oh. that book. He continues to teach all these people and Maury never saw a word of the book. Huh. It just goes to show you, you don't know in this life how you're going to influence things when you're gone. He had no idea that We'd be talking mm -hmm. about him now, you know, 26 years later. Yeah. Uh, but he, he didn't need to because that wouldn't have been the reason to do it. He wouldn't have said, hey, let's talk now so that Hoda will be asking you some <laughs> questions one day on her podcast. He did it because it was from his heart. Wow. And when you do the things from your heart, they're right. What did you lose the day he died? Um, a, a guidepost, you know, Every week that I was in there, I knew that I could ask any question about my life and that he would give me the right answer, mm. not only because he was a great teacher and I loved him, but because he was about to step out of this world and he had it in perspective. And he was able to say to me so many times on little things that I would bring up, he'd say, Mitch, this matters, hmm. Mitch, this doesn't matter. Hmm. Or Mitch, you think this matters, <laughs> but when you get to where I am, and then he would always say, and you will get to where I am, it's not gonna matter. Oh. And I lost all of that. Um, and I didn't have it again um, until my parents became you know, older and, and, and frail before I lost both of them. And um, I would have discussions with my father the same way. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Your dad was always a teacher too, or? He was quiet, yeah. more reserved, but as he, as he uh, got older and, and, you know, and, and he suffered a stroke and, mm -hmm. you know, for a few years there, he was limited in his movement, uh, but, you know, he, I think he realized that the end was coming and we had some good talks. Uh, that was the first time since Maury died that I felt that I, was, was getting that kind of wisdom too, because he knew also life is short. We learned something at the end that we don't have at the beginning. We just get this perspective. And it's like, 
you look over the precipice and you see, okay, this is really what life is. And then if you're lucky, you get to turn around and tell the people you love, hey, I'm about to go there. Let me tell you what I just realized. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. And I paid attention. I am a sieve for the wisdom of other people and older people. The one thing that I don't know where it came from in my mm. life, but I'm very, very, very grateful that it did, mm. is that even when I was a little boy, I was interested in older people. Huh. And a lot of my, you know, my, my friends, cousins, brother, sister, at the Thanksgiving table after the meal was done, you know, and, and there were older the uncles and aunts, the old country, they'd all be sitting mm -hmm. around. They, my, all the other kids bolted. They just bolted from, can we go now? You know, can we go? You know, and they went, but I would sit at the table and just listen to them tell their stories. And people ask me about, you know, where'd you learn how to write? What school did you go to? I said, I didn't go to any school to write. I learned how to write at the dinner table and wow. at the Thanksgiving table, just listening to my relatives tell stories wow. and watching how they would, who got to command the floor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like if I had an old aunt who was stuck on the details, like it was 1944. <laughs> no, wait, it was 1945. Maybe it was 44. Ah, shut up and they move <laughs> off to somebody else. Then I have my uncle Eddie and he'd say, so there we were, we were coming over the hill, see? And they were shooting at us. And I said to my buddy, look at them, they're over there. And he's like, you're riveted. You say, wow, that's how you tell a story. Right, right. He ended up becoming the Eddie of the five people you meet in heaven. Oh. That's who he was. Yeah. And so uh, I... I always listened to older people uh -huh. and liked it. And if you look at my life as it's turned out in my books, mm -hmm. there's Maury and Have a Little Faith. There's, mm -hmm. there's uh, mm -hmm. you know, Rabbi Lewis and, and Henry Covington. Rabbi mm -hmm. Lewis was in his 90s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then it kind of came full circle with Chica because I was now the older one mm -hmm. and I was listening to a, a five-year-old and a six-year-old. And by the way, you can learn just as much from a five-year-old, a six-year-old as you can from a 15, 60-year-old. And um, I just like absorbing the wisdom of other people and seeing if I can share it with the people that I write for. When we come back, Mitch on the biggest regret of his life and how that regret shaped the future for so many others. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. You've written so many beautiful books. Um, Finding Chica was like, I mean, so many moved me to my core, but yeah. that book in particular had so many moments in it 
And um, it's about a, a young girl from the from your orphanage who you bring home with you to help care for her in all kinds of ways, you and your wife. And you, you, did you guys ever want kids of your, oh, yeah. of your own? You did? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I dragged my feet on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, next thing you know, you're in your 40s. Yeah. And next thing you know, it's not so easy. Yeah. And uh, it's not like they told us in high school. And, um, you know, that was my fault. Um, we didn't get married till late, so we didn't have a, a big ramp up. And I shouldn't, you know, if I, it's probably the biggest regret of my life. Uh, but God works in funny ways, mm. you know, because now I've got 53 children. Mm. And so does my wife. And we look at them as our kids and we know everything there is about them. And, and uh, you know, I'm there. I'm in Haiti every single month. This kids come up and stay with us. And, you know, they're all going to go to college right down the street from us. We, you know, four of them are already mm-hmm. there. We see them every weekend and during the week and they come over. So I, I was very lucky. You know, God granted me uh, this escape hatch, you know, like, okay, mm-hmm. well, you missed out on the natural way of doing it. But as Chica taught me, there's no one way to make a family. You know, she was our daughter in every sense of the word. And I I would never think of her as anything otherwise. Um, Will you relay, there's a part of the book, and it's about how you had to go off and write your column for the Super Bowl or something, and she was there in the house. Radio show. Yeah, radio show. Yeah. uh, Well, at this point, Chica suffered from uh, DIPG, which is a brain tumor that Mm -hmm. hits young kids, usually between ages four and, and nine, and usually takes them within four months. And we were advised to just take her back to Haiti and let her die because, you know, it was going to happen to her. And I knew that this kid was tough because she was, she was rough and tumble from the time she came to us. She survived the earthquake when she was three days old. <laughs> her house fell down around her and she and her mother, the, the roof fell backwards, from what I understand. And so it didn't land on top of them. It was just made out of tin. So it fell backwards. And she was like exposed to the heavens when the earth stopped trembling, but they were alive. And so I, I used to say to her, you survived an earthquake when you're three days old. You can do anything. <laughs> and um, so we said, she was five, and we said, we're not taking her back to die. I'm not t- I would never take a kid to die. We're going to fight as long as she wants to fight. And it turned out to be two years. Hmm. And a lot of that two years was, you know, she was buoyant and funny and had her faculties. She got swollen by steroids and things like that, treatments. We took her all over the world. We lived in Germany for a while, all this stuff. But she was there. She was present. And uh, towards the end, she couldn't walk anymore. That was one of the things that she lost. But she was fine with that because I carried her everywhere. So I was her transportation. Mm-hmm. I'd take her to the bathroom. I'd take her to the car. I'd take her to And she would just lift her arms up yeah. and, okay, taxi. You know? <laughs> so um, we were sitting at the table and uh, we were coloring. And I looked at my watch. I realized I was late for this radio show. And I said, uh, oh, chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, just stay here and color with me. And I said, chica, I have to work. And she said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. Like, it was just so perfectly parallel. And I said, but Chica, you don't understand. This is my job. And she crossed her arms and made that little pouty face. And she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. And just like that moment with Maury, you know, I was like, oh, my God. What a sentence. You know, I, I felt just I felt my whole yeah. soul drop down to my feet. And uh, she didn't realize, of course, what she said, but I did. You know, and of course she was right. My job was carrying her, not just at that moment, but for her life. And all of our jobs as parents are to carry our children through the hard times and and, and the good times. And 
I realized that metaphor, you know, because I, I, I would always, I mean, she was heavy, you know, and mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to really fill my arms up. And I realized, like, I used to carry around my books, my work, my awards, my paycheck, my status, my whatever it was. And then you have to drop all that to carry a six and seven-year-old around because she can't walk herself. And you realize it's no comparison. And what we choose to fill our arms up with and what we choose to carry Mm. is actually what ends up defining us. Mm. It's not us. It's what we choose to carry. And carrying her was the most honorable, best thing I've ever had an opportunity to do. And I miss, when I miss her, which is every minute of every day, mm. I physically miss the um, mm. sensation of every time I would lift her, I can do right here. And her head would go right here. Mm. And uh, I'm right next on my shoulder. And um, it was a privilege to wow. carry her, you know, it was. Um, do you ever say to yourself or wonder, like with, there's so much love and there's also pain that goes with, do you ever play the balancing game? Like a lot of people don't get the great love that you have, but they, they also don't feel the great loss. Somebody much smarter than me once said that the only whole heart is a broken heart. Hmm. And I have come as I've gotten older uh, to realize that that's true. My mom used to say to me, uh, I said, how old do you want to be, mom? Why don't you live to 100? And she would say, I don't want to be the last one left. Hmm. I don't want to watch everybody I love go. Hmm. And... Of course, when you're younger, you don't really understand that. You don't have understand how time runs out. Mm -hmm. But when you get older, and, and especially when your parents go, and you're kind of next in line now, mm -hmm. you're the old one of the family, you, you start to think about that a lot. And um, I realized that they have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. They have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to know those highs of that kind of love, mm -hmm a kind of love that can break your heart mm -hmm. when you lose it, then you're going to have to endure the, the lows when you lose it. Mm -hmm. You should never, ever have to lose it from a child. I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I don't care if they were the worst person in the world. Mm -hmm. I watched Chica's last breath. My wife and I, we were on both sides of her in bed. And uh, the I carried her out to the uh, hearse or car, whatever it's called. It was, they were kind enough to all wait outside. They weren't inside the house. And as Haitian tradition is you wash the body and nice and clean and she had a beautiful dress and I carried her in that dress out mm. to, to that car. And when they took her away from me, I can't really describe that moment except it literally was like somebody was able to reach inside my chest and they pulled half of my soul out and put it in that car and mm. drove away with it. And I fell, mm. physically fell to the concrete of the driveway and I couldn't get up. I was just sobbing. Mm. And my wife was, Janine was with me too. And that's the flip side of mm -hmm. loving somebody so much. Mm -hmm. That's the flip side of loving somebody. Mm -hmm. But to put, try to put a little positive on okay, this. Okay, yes. And... Um, <laughs> In this, in this new book that I wrote, which is about 
um, you know, go into the whole thing, but it's about a bunch of people who were shipwrecked on a boat. It's called and the, the Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Yes. And, 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 and one of these survivors of a, a boat crash claims to be God because they were all calling, you know, God help us, God help us. And then he floats after three days, he just floats in, out of the ocean and they pull him in and, he's, and they say, who are you? And he says, I'm the Lord. What are you doing here? Well, you asked for you me. You called for me. You right? called for me. And at one point later in the book, um, one of the characters says to him, you know, why did you take my wife? You know, he's mourning his wife, he's mourning his wife. And, and he goes into this talk about how I know that all of my children cry when they lose their loved ones, but I promise you, those who are lost are not crying. Hmm. Hmm. And, you know, I think I wrote that almost as, yeah. as therapy, yeah. you know, uh, because I, I like to think of Chica, like I lost her, but heaven gained her and she got her smile back and she got her running back. Yeah. And when I wrote that sentence, I remember I was typing it. And sometimes you labor with a sentence when you're a writer, eh, wrong word, yeah. this, the wrong verb. But, and that one just spilled Came. out, you know, yeah. uh, you cry, but I assure you they do not. And I thought, okay, that, that came out way too easy for it to be, you know, uh, just writing. There's something more yeah, than writing. I have, just, just for the record, I have chills, <laughs> like right now, right all over me. Yeah. Coming up, how do you know if you have more love to give? Asking for a friend. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I made the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. I'm Michelle Norris. The kitchen is usually the heartbeat of our homes. It's the place where we're nourished physically and spiritually. It's where the people we love most chased away life's furies with skillets and spatulas. Every week I'm serving up a new episode of this Audible original podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. They're available anywhere you listen. I was just thinking about the number of, you know, kids you're caring for and the and the long, beautiful road ahead, watching them go all the way to college. Do you think you have a finite amount of space in your heart and soul for um, others? Or do you think you can, because I was just looking at your plate and it seems super full. And um, I don't, I'm asking for a friend because I also sometimes think, I think I have room for more, room for more. And you wonder, do you, or is there, is there always room? Is there a time where you say, okay? Um, if there is a time where you say, okay, that, yeah, that. 
it's when it starts to come at the expense of the other important things wow. in your heart. Yeah. But not when it comes at the expense of, well, then we can't take the Italy trip. Oh, right. Right. Or then we can't, or then I might not be able to get that, you know, promotion or whatever. Then I think you still probably have some space that you haven't used. Mm -hmm. But if you find, I mean, you know, 53 kids is a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. um, but it just makes you, it just makes you say, okay, pretty much every day to pretty much every kid, I will go up when, I, when I'm there and say, did I tell you today how much I love you? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes I say it because just I'm teasing them. Sometimes I say I for, I'm forgetting if I did or not. <laughs> and they say, you told me this morning. I said, okay, as long as I told you. And so you just have to change. You just have to move mm -hmm. things around a little bit. And mm -hmm. uh, But I think love is a pretty elastic mm -hmm. uh, sensation and, and, and emotion. And if there is a, a wall to it, I haven't reached it yet. Mm. You know, I think the other part that goes with that mm. is pushing the walls out to receive love. Mm. Because a lot of people, and Maury taught me that in a very big way. He said, you know, your problem isn't going to be in, in giving love out to people. It's going to be in accepting it. Wow. You know, you don't think you're worth it. You don't think you warrant it. Wait, that's big. You know, yeah. That's a big yeah. statement. Very big. And I think a lot of people, they think their problem with love is that, you know, um, that they, they, they can't find somebody to give it to or whatever. But a lot of the times the problem is they don't know how to receive it. Someone wants to love them and they back off. They run away. It's, a, it's that joke about, yeah. you know, I don't want to be part of any club that would have somebody like me as a member, you know, the Groucho Marx thing. And, uh, you know, you got to get over that too. Yeah. So how did you learn to, to receive it? What did you do? Um, I began to learn with my wife. Yeah. And I really learned with the kids because... Um, love and need are often connected, you know? And uh, I see that, you know, they had no one else. They had no one else. I feel like each of your books is full of like life lessons. And I've been thinking about that with this podcast because I feel like sometimes you want to walk away with something. The lessons from Maury are riveting. The lessons from your own life are blowing my mind. Mm. Um, is there some a lesson from your mom maybe that stood out from another book or is there? From my mom? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my mom said, uh, my mom gave me two great pieces of advice. One, the masses are asses. That's what she used to say all the time. And, she, and, and I never knew when I was younger that I would be in a, in a life where I would ever be concerned with masses, yeah. you know. Uh, but it's grown into that. And, and, you know, that when times when people criticize you or whatever, or just, you know, when you analyze the world, and wow, so many people are, are you know, Snapchatting or whatever. And you realize eh, the masses are asses. So I never forgot that one. And the other one she said is, listen, you're going to be lucky if you have one or two good friends in your mm. life. And if you're really lucky, you'll marry the one of them. And I did. Mm. And she did and I did. Yeah, those are the two best things. You got wise people in your life, I huh? did. I mean, I feel like you live your life of service. And I only know this because, you know, I, I know. Because I'm always hitting you up for charitable things. No, you know things. what it is? You're never, like you said, you never ask for anything for yourself. Huh. Never, never, never. But your charity in Detroit, for the kids in Detroit, the homeless kids in Detroit, I hear your passion on the radio talking yeah. about them. 
And I asked this of my friend, Maria Schreiber's a good friend of mine, and, I, and she's very much of service. And I said to her, how did you, how did this come to be? And she said, well, you know, my mom, you know, started the Special Olympics. And my dad started the Peace Corps. She said they never once mentioned the word service. Mm. They just did it. I watched them do it. And I never thought anything other than, oh, this is what we do. Yeah. It wasn't taught that way. But I was just curious because your life is so full of that. Yeah. Um, was it taught? Was it just something that came? Um, it wasn't taught on a... Uh on a program kind of let's yeah. go do this charity level. Yeah. It was taught by my parents and the way that they treated everybody around they them. They did, yeah. And uh, when there were, when they had friends that I later discovered, you know, hit financial troubles, they helped take care uh. of them. And they weren't, they didn't have money themselves, but they, they, they helped, helped take care of them. I, I do think it comes from, um, it just comes from the good feeling that you mm -hmm. get from doing it. Mm -hmm. Giving is living, you know, knowing that you're needed is the most satisfying, I think, interaction of the human emotions to, mm. to help someone who is in need makes you calm in a way that grabbing things to make yourself mm -hmm. richer or bigger never will. And just, um, I don't want to end with any life advice because you've given us such great advice, but um, is there something that you've that that you've kind of been carrying with you is there a, a a little piece we can just kind of kind of put a button on this and I'm going to again remind people that the book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat it's out in November and everyone's been a bestseller half of them are movies it's crazy do you ever go like uh-oh is this going to be a bestseller or do you just put it out in the universe and uh, come what the, may the day, the times for uh-oh are, are long oh, past me <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I I I'm just looking for the energy at this point oh, no like no uh-ohs I like the attitude yeah. I like it um, I don't know. Uh, I, I just find as I get older that um, the only thing that really um, energizes me the way that when I was younger, everything seemed to is children. Hmm. And I think as we become more disillusioned with how we as adults are behaving, mm -hmm. we look to children. And I see this in you. You know, when we talk all the time, I mm -hmm. see this in you, you know, uh, when you talk about your children, mm -hmm. it's not just a mother's pride in the children. It's like hope. Yeah. It's like hope. Yeah. Uh, you you see your yeah. position enables you to see everything. And, and you, you always keep a great smile on, but you've seen plenty of ugliness. Mm -hmm. You've seen plenty of bad behavior by people and you report on it and you're talking about it. And then these kids come along and they're so pure and they're, they're, they're just they're just filled with all the goodness mm -hmm. that we have somehow tarnished as we've gotten older or stained or put aside for mm -hmm. other things. And you just see in them, maybe if I can guide them correctly, they won't make the mistakes that I made mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll keep this joy. They'll keep this mm -hmm. passion for life. And, 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 and you show me your daughter with a, a lollipop, <laughs> you know, like a lollipop is going to be, you know, but you want that to yeah. keep that, yes. you know? You just yes. want to hold on to that. And yes. and at the, the so anybody who's feeling a little a little down or a little blue mm -hmm. about the world or depressed about the way we're going at mm -hmm. each other's throats in this country, find a child mm -hmm. that needs help and just spend time with it and you mm -hmm. will be renewed because that's that's nature or God's way of of just reminding us we we were like that once and uh there's great goodness and kindness inside every child's heart. If we can just hang on to it, we can learn a lot from them. 
Mitch Alba. Mitch, thank you. Thank you for sure. sitting with me. It was beautiful. Thanks for thank inviting you. me. My pleasure. All good? Okay. I'll cry for an hour. I you're a natural home. at this. No, I need to go home. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're oh making me cry God. a couple of times. So oh. you see tears in your eyes, and then I start crying. It's very infectious. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening and going on this journey with me. If you like what you've heard, and I sure hope you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Ursula Summer, along with associate producer Olivia Rouchard, researcher Rachel Young, and audio engineer Bob Mallory. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Minna Kathoria is our executive producer. Soraya Gage is our general manager. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.